look at uh look at look at this sign. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna get to that. You're stealing my thunder. You're stealing my thunder. You're right. We don't have a Krispy Kreme super close, but I'm guessing most of you know what this sign means, right? If that thing's lit up, that means those babies are hot and ready. Maybe, maybe this was unhelpful. Some of you are only going to be thinking about Krispy Kremes for the rest of the time. And that's okay, as long as you remember that this sign makes you think of something deeper in the same way that Jesus' signs make you think of something deeper, I'm fine. You can check out and go to Fort Wayne and get yourself some Krispy Kremes later. But my point is, as we talk about the signs of Jesus, the, the, the sign itself, that's just a billboard, right? If there wasn't anything beyond the sign, then it wouldn't really mean anything to us. But because many of you know what this sign points to, if that sign's lit up, it means that there is a store underneath that sign that you can walk in, and there are these beautiful little balls of dough that are running on a conveyor belt through a deep fryer, conveyor belt through a deep fryer and through this wonderful sweet sugary glazed waterfall and at the end of that you can pull one off and it's hot and it's fresh and you can taste a little piece of heaven right you can you say levi heaven really that's that's a lot well let me tell you this it has been 11 years since i've experienced pulling one of these hot and ready donuts off the line. When I was a, uh, a senior in high school, we went on a senior trip with like eight or nine of us. We were driving down the road. We saw a light on. And we're like, hey, doesn't that mean there's hot and fresh? So we went in. And I can, to this day, remember what that donut tasted like. I can remember the whole... I'm, I'm serious. I've only done it once, and it still sticks with me. So I, I wish there was one close. There's not. I just found out there's one in Fort Wayne. But my point is that this sign creates in me... Um, a memory and an experience of something wonderful that happened, of a delicious, tasty treat. And, and that's the point of science. That's the point of all signage. It's not about the sign itself, but it's about what it points to beyond itself. The sign is not the important thing. What's most important is the thing that it points, points to. And the same thing is true of Jesus Christ and all of the signs that he did. At the end of John's gospel, if you read clear to the end, in John 20, verses 30 through 31, Jesus, or John says this, the apostle John, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written so that you might believe, so that in Jesus Christ, you believe in him, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so Wes and I, as we go through this series, we want you to remember that as we work through the miracles of Jesus, the miracles and the signs are fascinating. They're supernatural, they're crazy, and they're awesome, but we can't just stop at the sign. We've got to move beyond them, beyond the sign, and discover what the deep truths about Jesus are and the things that he came to do. See, Jesus didn't do any of the signs that we're going to read about just to impress people. Right? It wasn't cute little party tricks or crazy displays of power. Everything that Jesus did was done in such a way to point beyond the miracles themselves to the deep spiritual realities that could only be perceived by faith. In much the same way that a lighted Krispy Kreme sign isn't about the sign. It points to that heavenly experience, right? So too, the signs of Jesus, if you'll follow them where they're pointing, will lead you to heavenly treats as well. And so that's the aim of this series. We're going to talk about the seven signs and then the resurrection later at Easter, which is kind of the eighth sign. We're going to spend seven weeks following the signs of Jesus to their heavenly ends. What we can learn about who Jesus is and why that matters for our everyday life. So with that in mind, I want you to open your Bibles to John 2. John 2, or swipe there, it'll be on the screen too. 
Get in the habit of opening up in your, in your Bibles. It's on page uh, 751 in the Black Bible if you don't have one. And as you're, as you're swiping there or turning there, I'll let you kind of know where the sign that we're going to read is pointing to this morning. The section of Scripture we're going to read this morning points to Jesus. I'm like, oh, big surprise there, Levi. I know. It's not a big surprise. But it points to Jesus, and it, and it lets us know a few things about him. The first thing it lets us know is that Jesus is not a killjoy. He's not a killjoy. He's also not a magician. And he is, in fact, the gracious, compassionate, all-powerful creator God who came to share his glory with us. He came to share his glory with us, and that's a good thing because it maximizes our joy. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. Jesus isn't a killjoy. He's not a magician. He's a good and compassionate God who came to share his glory with us. So let's read about that together, starting in John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for, uh, the, kind used for the Jews by the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, draw some out and take it to the headmaster of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then they called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone who... Brings, or everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of, the, of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Okay, there's actually quite a lot going on here. So we'll start in the beginning. The first thing that I'd like for all of us to notice from this encounter I want you to see that Jesus is not a killjoy. And I debated about using this slide. I hope you're not offended by that. But Jesus isn't a killjoy. He's not a party pooper, right? We know what killjoy means, most of us. But if you don't, I googled it. And Google defines it as a person who deliberately spoils the enjoyment of others through resentful or overly sober behavior, right? You hear the, you hear the, the, the kind of music in your head, wah, wah, wah. That's a killjoy, right? That's someone that's like, they're raining on your parade. They're, they're a party pooper. Jesus is not that. You say, well, how do you know? How do you know Jesus isn't a killjoy? Well, if Jesus were a killjoy, he probably wouldn't have been at this wedding because this wedding had wine at it. And not to mention that, they ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. That means they drank a lot of it, right? Or maybe the planning was, was a little off, but... They, they, they ran out of wine, and so Jesus is there. He goes to this party where there's wine. But more than that, when they run out, his mom's coming. He says, hey, they ran out of wine. Jesus, notice how he responds. He doesn't respond like a killjoy. Well, I knew I shouldn't have come here, you bunch of drunks, right? I knew I shouldn't have come here. I know they didn't run out on account of me. I brought sparkling grape juice, right? <laughs> he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. That's what a killjoy would have done. But Jesus isn't a killjoy. So he doesn't do that. And he doesn't say any of that. Now, maybe some of you are 
are kind of a little uncomfortable with this, right? We're talking about alcohol. I know that's kind of a touchy subject. And some of you are like, well, wait a second. Jesus wasn't a drunk. Like, hold on, Levi. He's not a killjoy, but he's not like a wild, woo, crazy. That's not Jesus. You're right. You're right. So maybe you're some of you a little uncomfortable. And then there's a handful of you that are a little too excited right now. Jesus, he likes wine, right? <laughs> Calm down. Let me explain myself. Before anybody gets too offended, let's talk a little bit about alcohol. About alcohol. Jesus isn't a killjoy, but he is certainly not a drunkard, right? The Bible actually can, he, the Bible condemns drunkenness. Don't be drunk with wine. That's what it says in Ephesians. In Galatians, it says, if you're a drunkard, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? This is a big deal. Drunkenness is a sin. And we're told that Jesus was sinless. So if he did consume alcohol, he didn't consume alcohol in excess, he was accused of being a drunkard. Why? Because he hung out with people who probably drank too much. But Jesus didn't drink too much, okay? So we, we know that, that Jesus, he's not a killjoy, but he's also not a drunkard. And some of you probably won't appreciate that I've admitted this from the pulpit. It's like, alcohol is bad. It's terrible. Stay away from it. And I understand that. Alcohol has, it's probably one of the most harmful drugs in our society as far as like the damage that it causes. Some of you are, are recovering. And, and you yourself have experienced how terrible alcohol can be when it's misused and misproperly treated. So some of you might be a little upset that I'm even mentioning that the Bible doesn't condemn it outright as sin. And you maybe decided for you, like, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to stay away from it. And, and to that I say, good for you. Good for you. That's probably a wise decision. Pastor Wes abstains from alcohol because alcoholism runs in his family, right? His grandpa... But grandpa, grandpa was a drunk, great grandpa was a drunk, and, and it wreaked havoc. And so he says, just for me and my genetics, I'm going to stay away from it. Now, that's okay for Wes to say that. That's honestly probably a wise thing for Wes to say. Let me tell you what Wes doesn't say. Because all of this was so harmful and so bad and so negative, everybody should not drink alcohol. And if you have a sip, you're going to hell. I've never heard Wes say that. I've never heard him say that. And in fact, it would be wrong for him to say that. Because God doesn't prohibit the use of alcohol. He doesn't say flat out, don't drink it, it's a sin, right? So as we think about how to use alcohol, the Bible kind of gives us two options. The first option is moderation. Moderation in consideration of your friends, your brothers and sisters. Before you consume a drink, first of all, your aim shouldn't be to get drunk. And second of all, if there's someone in your company that you're going to tempt or... Um, or lead into sin, or you consuming alcohol is going to offend them, the Bible says you should, you should give up your freedom. You're free to consume in moderation, but if that freedom is going to impinge or hurt your brother or sister in Christ, then you should abstain. In that moment, you, you should abstain. That would, be, that would be the right thing for you to do. So moderation, considering what your brothers and sisters around you feel about alcohol. The other option is complete abstinence. You could just stay completely away from it altogether. Those are the two options. Alcohol isn't inherently evil, right? Actually, the Bible says some, some things that you might not know about alcohol. It says it warms the heart. It gladdens the heart. It's a good gift from God used in the proper confines of God's good design, just like every other good gift that God has given us. The good gifts that we have, we can abuse. We can take them out of God's good design. Sex, money, power, can take all of those things that aren't inherently evil outside of God's design, and when we, when we do that, disaster happens. 
but used in, inside of God's design, they can be a beautiful thing, a gift of celebration. It can gladden the heart, right? Used appropriately. So that's, that's kind of what the Bible says about that. Um, so back to the wedding. We, we don't really know why they ran out of wine. They could have ran out because these people were being wild and crazy, or they could have ran out because the groom just didn't prepare well enough, right? Their whole celebration was usually a week long. It was like an open house. Instead of going on a honeymoon, they just had a big party at their house, which sounds terrible to me, but hey, more power to you. So the groom was in charge of, of planning the party, and his planning could have been off. We don't really know. We don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. But they run out, and from that, we can observe that Jesus wasn't a killjoy. He didn't come to, content, to, uh, to con- condemn anyone. And a lot of people kind of think of Jesus like this. They think that he came to suck the fun out of life. But this is one of many instances that flies in the face of that idea. Jesus was someone who got invited to parties, who went to parties. He was, an, he, he was someone that people liked to hang out with. And he was sinless at the same time. People seemed to enjoy being around him, having him around, even though he was holy. Christian, if, are, you, are you so self-righteous and so focused on sin that you're no fun to be around? That's not what Jesus was like. We should strive to look like Jesus. We should pursue holiness. If you have a problem with alcohol, and, and one of the ways that you maybe could discover that, take 30 days and just don't drink anything. If you can't do that, that substance has a control on your life. You might need to get some help. There's no shame in that. We would love to help you. Talk to Wes or I. There's a clinic in town that, that helps with that sort of thing. But if, if it has control on you, you, you probably need to get help. So we need to pursue sinless behavior. We need to pursue holiness, but in such a way that, that doesn't come across as condemning to everyone else, right? Are you so wound tight about sin that nobody wants to be your friend? That's not what Jesus was like. We should care about holiness. We should strive for it. We should do so in in the way that Jesus did. If we do it right, that's going to draw many people in. It's going to offend some people. It just is. We can't avoid that. But we should fight against that. So that means being conscientious, thinking through how how we conduct ourselves in public. And maybe instead of just like snubbing our nose and, and leaving the party, Maybe just don't consume and stay there and and don't say, well, you guys are drunks and I'm leaving, right? That might be okay. That might be the thing to do. Pray about it. The Holy Spirit will guide you and direct you and hopefully do so in such a way where you can pursue holiness and be righteous, but do so in such a way that doesn't drive people away from you. It's like, well, that guy, he thinks he's better than me, holier than thou, right? We don't want to be that. That will happen sometimes, but we should fight against it. Does that make sense? So Jesus, he wasn't a killjoy. He wasn't a drunk, but he also, he wasn't a killjoy. Actually, Jesus came to help us better enjoy the good things in life, not suck the joy from life. And we'll get to that in my last point. So Jesus isn't a killjoy. He's also not a magician. He's not a magician. It comes from verses three through four. This young couple runs out of wine. We don't know why. Maybe poor planning. Maybe they're being crazy. Who knows? We don't know. And Jesus' mother's, mother comes to him. She probably was helping put the party together. It's, it's relatives, is, is what a lot of commentators said. So she comes to him and says, Jesus, son, they've run out of wine, right? Now, we don't really understand why this is a big deal. Running out of wine is a huge problem for this couple. They live in a shame culture where honor and shame, it's prized above all else, not money, not fame. If you, you keep 
You honor your family. So hospitality is prized, taking care of people. It's, in, it's incredibly, it's a huge deal. So to, to run out of wine, something like this could tarnish this young couple and their family for the rest of their lives. You'd be like marked. It's like, oh, that's the couple that ran out of wine. They're, they're terrible hosts, right? It's laughable to us. We don't really understand that. But if you dig through some of the archaeology, there's some documents that the Jewish law code, you could actually, if you're, the, the groom's family provided this stuff. So if you're the, the bride's family, you could sue the groom's family for this, Right? Right? We just had a wedding of, of two couples in here. Their, their uh, son and daughter got married. And Can you imagine, Don, if, if uh, you felt like, uh, like Joe didn't have enough booze at your party, you could sue him. You owe me 30-12 packs, right? That was a real thing. It's documented, right? So we, we don't get this, but it goes down. It's not about drunkenness. It's about hospitality, about making sure that guests are taken care of, about not bringing shame on the family. This is a huge deal. It's laughable to us, but think about it like this. Imagine if you have a daughter and she's going to get married and the groom's family says, we're going to take care of everything. We have this rustic barn. We're going to set it up. And you've been on Pinterest and you know the barn weddings, right? You've seen them. They're beautiful. Rustic barns. Yes, I'm in. So you go and the day you get there, it's going to be magical. Only it's not because your idea of rustic and your hillbilly in-law's idea of rustic are two different things, right? You get there and you realize that the barn you're using is actually a barn that just got cleaned out the night before. It still smells like pig. Pig does not smell good. It smells worse than cow. It's true. It doesn't smell good, right? So you get there. Can you imagine what you would feel like in that moment? You would be furious. You would be irate. That would be shameful. This is what Mary is feeling in this moment as she comes to Jesus. And she says, son, they've run out of wine. And Jesus responds, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, fellas, I know what you're thinking. I found my life verse. No. (laughs) Woman, what does this have to do with me? That is not your life verse, right? Dear woman. woman. Yeah, in the ESV it says woman. It says woman. It is dear woman. It's more like man, which it's his mom. So he's not being rude but he's also not speaking to his mother the way that a son should be speaking to his mother, or normally would think. So he's not being rude, but he is being abrupt. Why is that? Why is Jesus speaking to his mom like this? Well, he's letting her know that he is not a magician. He's not a magician. David Copperfield, Michael Cabanero, have you seen that show, The Cabanero Effect? Right? They're magicians. You can hire them. You can hire them. I'm willing to bet if you're the president or you're a family member, you could probably get them to perform just simply because of who you are or who you know or your relational connection, right? This is not the case with Jesus. Even his mother has to come to him just like everyone else as the Lord of the universe. He can't be manipulated. VIP connections, there are none, right? There's no VIP treatment, no special access to Jesus. No one, not even his mother, can presume upon his power. He's not about cheap party tricks. He's not your personal magician or anyone else's. He serves his father and his father's will above all else. And some of you might be a little disappointed by this or even put off by it, but it's actually a really good thing. It's a good thing. This means that everyone comes to Jesus exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. It doesn't matter who you know or what you know or who you don't know. It doesn't matter what your genetics are or your family legacy or lack of family pedigree. It doesn't matter what your past is. 
It doesn't matter where you came from. Everyone has equal access to Jesus. Now, this might not sound like a good thing. If Jesus were a bad God, it probably wouldn't be. But this interaction shows us that that's not the case. Jesus isn't a killjoy. He's not a magician. But he is a gracious and compassionate, all-powerful creator God, right? Jesus, essentially, he reminds his mom that she cannot presume on his power, but he's good. He's compassionate. He's gracious. And that, at the end of the day, is what wins out. So he kind of, he says, hey, mom, you can't can't just presume on my power that I'm just going to come and save the day, but I love you, and I love these people. And, And so... Mary knows all of that. So if you notice, it's like, there's like kind of a rebuke. And she's like, I just get in my mind, she's like, ah, Jesus, sometimes you say things and I don't know what you're talking about. Just servants, just do whatever he says, right? So she doesn't presume on his power. She presumes on his grace, which you and I can always do because he is gracious and he is compassionate and he loves us abundantly, right? And so Jesus motivated by grace, by love. He says, this isn't the hour for, this isn't my hour, which when he says this isn't my hour, he's talking about the crucifixion, when he will be glorified before everyone. He says, it's not the time yet, right? But let me share you a glimpse of who I am and what I'm doing. Let me show you a glimpse of what I'm about to do. You see, the Jews used to use these jars for ritual cleansing, right? They used to achieve cleanliness by dipping their fingers in these jars before they would go into a house or go up to the temple to, symbol, to simplify uh, that, they, that they had to, to be clean, to be cleansed before they could approach God. So Jesus signifies, he says, I'm going to make these old traditions obsolete. What I'm going to do is going to make, make this all go away. I'm going to cleanse you in such a way that you never have to go through these hoops ever again. Because of my blood that's about to be poured out on the cross, all of these old traditions are going away forever. You're, you're going to receive the last ceremonial cleansing that you will ever need. And along with that, he takes the opportunity to show himself as the ultimate husband, right? When this man fails to provide sufficiently, Jesus steps up to the plate and he provides abundantly. This wedding ceremony is a celebration And it's a foretaste. It foreshadows the wedding celebration that you and I, if you believe in Christ, will will join with Jesus in the end. In Revelation 19.9, the Apostle John speaks about like this. He says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper, the the wedding that he's talking about is between Christ and his church. So it might be kind of weird for some of you guys, like, Jesus is my husband? Don't think of it like that. Think about Jesus as being an ultimate provider. When you fail, Jesus will step up and make up for any of your shortcomings. He will, he will be an endless supply in your need. Whenever you need, you can go to him and you can, you can presume on his grace, that he's going to take care of you. And so he turns 180 gallons of water into wine. 180 gallons. This is more than anyone could drink, right? And Jesus is an advocate. Yeah, drunkenness. No, The symbolism is that I will provide for your needs so far beyond what you could ever imagine. Some commentators said that no one would ever go through this. This is actually an incredibly awesome wedding present. It's like Jesus gave them a couple thousand dollars cash because all the leftover wine they can sell and distribute, right? Super cool. So Jesus takes care of us far beyond anything that we could ask or even begin to imagine. The sign is also 
a, a deeper picture of our need. No amount of water can ever get us clean. No amount of washing our hands or jumping through hoops or going to church or giving money, none of those traditions can make us be able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. The only thing that can do that is a supernatural work, a miracle. And Christ is prepared to do it, and he has done it for you and for me. He's the only one powerful enough to defeat Satan, sin, and death, to provide for our every need, to get us clean enough to be able to approach God, to have a relationship with him. And that's what he does. And lastly, I think that this sign reveals to us, and the text tells us in, in verse 11, that Jesus came to share his glory. He came to share his glory. Now, some of you, if you're selfish like me, you're like, okay, he deserves glory. He's all creator God. I get that. But what does that have to do with me? How does that help me? And I'm just being honest with you. That's kind of what I'm like, okay, God's glory. That's good. He deserves it. But how does that help me? Well, God's glory happens to be yours and my best avenue for joy. You say, how? How is God's glory how does that give me joy? Think about this story. Jesus shared his glory with this couple and his mother and his disciples. The couple, they saved face. Shame was not brought upon them because of Jesus sharing his glory, right? He sidesteps the whole thing, doesn't make a big deal about it, provides abundantly and takes care of this couple. I'm sure many others, um, many other people have, have maybe been confronted about a drinking issue from this text. This is, a lot, this is a common text that people will use to talk about alcohol like I did. Maybe some people have been saved out of alcoholism, alcoholism because of this. I'm sure others have come to know that there's no amount of water that will cleanse them, that in fact they need Jesus' shed blood to make that happen. Others have probably been encouraged about how this sign points to the fact that Jesus will provide for us, that he'll never fail us, that he'll give us more than we can ask or imagine. All of this happens in people's lives because Jesus shared his glory at this moment, at this wedding. There are countless joys that people have experienced because of this sign. And this is how Jesus works in our lives. He reveals his glory, shares it with us, and this ends up maximizing our joy. You see, when we invite Jesus into our lives, we can't presume on his power, but we can presume on his grace. We can presume on his grace like his mother did. And we can trust that he will be good to us. If we invite Jesus into our lives the way that this young couple invited him to their wedding, we can trust that he won't be a killjoy. Instead, he will actually maximize our joys in life because time and time again, he will show up and give us small glimpses of his glory and his power. And those glimpses are going to reorient our lives, how we live, what we think is important. It's going to enable us to receive God's good gifts in, in their proper place according to his good design. You see, Jesus doesn't come to condemn any one of us. He doesn't. He says, I came for the sick. He's talking about sinful people, those who abuse alcohol, those who follow their lust, those who do all sorts of bad things. Jesus doesn't come to condemn us. He says, I come for the sick. I came as a doctor to heal to bring blessing. He comes to reveal how good he is and how powerful he is to show us how much better he is than all of that other stuff, to reveal his glory to us. And if we would respond with the eyes of faith like his disciples, he will help us live in such a way that all of the good things in life will become more enjoyable, more enjoyable than they ever were before Jesus. 
Living in light of Jesus, in light of his glory, helps us keep the things of this world in their proper place. Again, Jesus doesn't come to strip the joy from our life. He came to make the good things in life more enjoyable. Let's go back to the alcohol situation again. Alcohol isn't evil in and of itself. As I've said, the Bible actually says that alcohol is a good gift that gladdens the heart. Alcohol isn't evil, but it becomes an issue when we use it outside of God's good design. This is true of all of God's good gifts. Many things, like sex and money, they're not bad, but if we take them out of God's good design, they become disastrous. So Jesus comes and he reveals his glory to us. He shows us how great and how good and how powerful he is, not to lord it over us, but to help keep things in the proper perspective. And when we worship Jesus as the good and glorious God that he is, only then will will we be enabled to receive and use the good things in this world within God's good design. When we receive and share in God's glory, when we believe in him like his disciples did, he reorients our minds, he transforms our thinking and helps us see the things and use the things in the world the proper way they're meant to be used. And this enables us to enjoy life and live an abundant life. To enjoy the good things of life without becoming enslaved to them or without becoming destroyed by them. The band can come up and and we'll wrap up. Do you see how, how this sign points beyond itself to some deeper realities? Jesus isn't a killjoy who came to condemn people. He also isn't a magician that we can manipulate or presume upon, but he is good and he loves us. And if we'll share in his glory by faith, he will maximize the amount of joy that we will be able to experience in our lives. How's that for a taste of heaven? It's not quite Krispy Kreme. I think it's a lot better than that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you didn't come with a big stick. That you didn't come to smack us around and remind us of how sinful we are and how we all deserve to go to hell. Thank you that you came as someone who loves us. Thank you that that you stood upon your convictions and you lived a sinless life, but you did so in a way that invites us to pursue the glories of holiness and the joys of holiness. Thank you for giving us the example in Jesus, showing us how to walk that line of holiness, but to do so in love. Lord, would you help us speak the truth in love? Help us live the truth in a loving way that doesn't condemn people, Lord, or or push them away, but invites them into the amazing relationship that we can have because you shed your blood on the cross, because you did a supernatural work that cleanses us, that changes our desires from running after the, the, the things of this world and elevating them to such a stance where we become enslaved by alcohol or sex or money or power. Thank you for reorienting our desires through the power of your spirit so that we could worship you and love you more than we love anything else and thereby receive the good gifts that you want to give to us. The good gifts of of sex within a marriage, the good gifts of raising parents, the good gifts of of enjoying enjoying a glass of wine on occasion, the good gifts, Lord, that you, you give to us, there are so many. Thank you for coming and saving us from ourselves and enabling us to receive an abundant life here and look towards a perfect life where there is no sin in heaven. We love you, Lord. Help us love you more. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.